Hi, my name is uh, Dr. Jack Tan from uh, Singapore. I was the immediate past president for the Asian Pacific Society of Cardiology. And with me, I'm very privileged to have Dr. Christopher Plummer. He's the chair for the European Examination and Core Cardiology in conjunction with the APSC Exit Examination. And of course, we publish an introduction to this uh, in the journal of the APSC. Uh, Dr. Chris Palmer is from Newcastle upon Tyne, the NHS Foundation Trust Group of Hospitals. So I, I'm just going to set a brief context about why this APSC exit exam came about. And uh, we'll have a quick uh, Q&A between myself and Chris. So as we all know, um, the APSC is a grouping of 22 cardiology societies with, uh, in Asia for 22 countries. And the cardiology general uh, core knowledge varies between countries. And most countries in Asia does not have an exit examination uh, or a formalized curriculum. And therefore the knowledge base as well as the standards for cardiology within uh, Asia is pretty varied. My hope is that with this uh, um, candidates and this joint collaboration between EECC as well as APSC joint exit exam, we can provide an opportunity to raise the standards and benchmark of uh, general cardiology among candidates, as well as give folks like me a chance uh, to learn how to train the trainers. So uh, I'd like to just uh, start off by uh, asking Chris to a few questions. Uh, in our publication, we the previously it was known as a European examination in general cardiology prior to 2020, and now it's known as a European examination in core cardiology. Uh, maybe Chris, you, you started at the beginning, maybe you give us some highlights about why ESC and EEGC started this journey. Thank you very much, Jack. And it's a pleasure and a privilege to work with you and APSC on this joint project. Um, the European exam um, has been running for more than 10 years now, and it's a collaboration between uh, UEMS, Union of European Medical Specialists, and the European Society of Cardiology to provide a knowledge-based exam designed to test the knowledge required for independent practice as a cardiologist around the world. Uh, and the exam has grown from a few European countries, including the UK, to a global exam uh, with countries taking part all the way from Puerto Rico uh, all the way to um, the APSC and Singapore. And it's very important that we do that together. It's a joint project and the, the exam is stronger the more countries, the more participants it has. In terms of the name, uh, it was originally called the European Examination General Cardiology, as you said, Jack, and we changed it to Core Cardiology when we published the, the 2020 Core Curriculum for the Cardiologist by the ESC, because we wanted to make it very explicit what the curriculum for the exam was, and largely it is based on ESC guidelines and the Core Curriculum that defines what a cardiologist should do and should know. Thanks, Chris. Um, and I, I know there's so many subtopics in cardiology. I, I understand it's currently split into four main sessions, uh, sections of imaging and valvular heart disease, rhythm disorders, coronary artery disease, acute cardiovascular care, preventive prevention, rehab, and sports. 
and lastly, heart failure and cardiac patients in other settings. Uh, split into, I believe, 62 uh, topics, uh, covering a whole host of questions. Maybe you'd like to take us through, is, there, is, is this uh, section going to be revised and how do people think about the main sections that they should cover for this exit examination? So the, the exam is designed, as I said, to cover the broad range of what we regard as core cardiology, what we should all know to practice safely. And the topics are exactly the topics in the ESC core curriculum. So we've start, used that as a starting point for this division within the exam. In order to make sure that it's covering a uh, that right range and with the appropriate um, use of different topics, we divide the exam questions into those four sections that you've just described. They are to an extent arbitrary, uh, but they roughly represent quarters of the knowledge and the questions that we have to test that knowledge across the exam. We've tried to be logical in, in the pairing, so valvular and imaging go together. Um, acute coronary syndromes uh, and uh, chronic coronary, coronary syndromes and acute cardiovascular care go together. Um, the others are, as I say, largely arbitrary rhythm and uh, heart failure and other conditions. Uh, but for us, that, that makes sure that we cover the spectrum. And within that, we make sure that we sample from each of the topics. We don't guarantee to have a, a question on every single topic. Um, there are a limited number of things that core cardiology needs to know about tricuspid stenosis, for example. Uh, but we cover that broad, broad range and we make sure that all of the topics is covered are uh, covered within a two to three year repeating cycle so that we make sure that it's representative of the knowledge that people need to know. Thanks, uh, Chris. Um, and I, I know that 70% of the selected questions are text only. Uh, we've, we, we try very hard to make the text very clear without ambiguity. And 30% will contain either image or video. Uh, that's played through the administrated uh, test. And I believe there's still 120 questions. Uh, maybe you'd like to take us through the rigor behind what the board does to make sure that the standards of each question is fulfilled. Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. And we're very pleased to uh, share the methodology that we use in the exam, which is being used in lots of other high stakes exams around the world. As you said, the, the, the exam consists of 120 best of five multiple choice questions, which are delivered online uh, over a three hour period. We were very clear right at the beginning of setting up this exam more than 10 years ago that it needed to be delivered on computers. Cardiology is not simply a static picture and a text uh, topic that you could test in that way. We needed moving images from, uh, from echo, from invasive angiography, for example. Um, so it has always been delivered on, on computers. And the rationale for the way that it's designed is that we test that broad range of knowledge um, and uh, we divide the questions. As you say, they are designed to be as short and clear as possible. And for that reason, each of the tables where we edit questions has a variety of different uh, national societies represented to make sure that we're not uh, blinkered in our understanding about what uh, appropriate language would be. So the methodology by which a question would uh, reach the exam, just to show you that we take the quality and the lack of any ambiguity in a question really seriously, 
Um, we each write questions twice a year. We have two question writing meetings and we bring our questions for peer review, usually around a virtual or physical table of six to eight uh, experienced cardiologists and some trainees. And we discuss each question and we make sure that it fits our standard format of a short clinical stem followed by a very specific question. And as you said, 30% of the questions will contain an image or, or, or video. And we, we highlight that and that they are displayed on the screen as clearly as possible. Um, there are then five uh, options uh, in response to the question uh, and you choose the best. And there is only one best answer in each of the questions. Um, if the table is satisfied that that question is asking a point of knowledge that's important, and it's asking it clearly, and it's a fair question, that question is then accepted into our question bank. But in order for a question to get into the real exam, that question would have to be selected by the question selection group, which sit uh, next week, in fact, in, in February each year, uh, to select 120 questions for the exam. They actually select uh, 180 questions so that there is an, another element of selection that happens after that. Uh, and each of those questions is reviewed by that group. There's then a standard setting group who meet in March to assess the difficulty of each of the questions. And they estimate what proportion of just passing candidates will get the question right. And they have a process to assess what they ex the expected pass mark of the exam is. We then have a Find, and, and they make the final selection of 120 questions based on, on that process. We then have a final review section where me as the chair and uh, uh, the chair of the question uh, uh, selection group review the questions to make sure there isn't and nothing has changed since they were selected to make sure that they're all clear and fair before those are uh, sent to the providers, uh, SIM and PROC2U for distribution as the real exam in June. So that's our rigorous process. In addition to that, we look at the performance of each questions uh, across the, the range of candidates who sit it. And we look for questions where a very high proportion or very low proportion of candidates get them right. And we also look for questions where there's a negative correlation between your performance in that question, and your performance in the rest of the exam. So for example, if high performing candidates in the rest of the exam get a question wrong, it may be that we've missed something in terms of the subtlety about the way it's asking the question or point of knowledge that is tangential to the question that's actually being asked, but is over-interpreted by the candidates. And the, the board reserve the right to exclude questions that we consider are unfair or have behaved very badly in the exam and we usually exclude between zero and two or three questions so the process is rigorous in that the vast majority pass that test but if we find any that uh, behave poorly for a reason that we didn't predict we can exclude those and then we calculate the pass mark based on the performance of candidates across the exam and we look for uh, two standard deviations around the expected pass mark, we look for the uh, 75 to 95 percent pass rate, and we draw a line through that uh, to calculate the exact pass mark for the exam, and that's validated at the board, uh, which meets in June or July each year before the pass marks are are uh, passed on to the candidates. Uh, Chris, that sounds extremely painful, but th thanks for all the hard work. So the audience, I, I can vouch for that. Um, part of the board at the EGC and there are multiple meetings where we try to make the questions 
as uh, succinct as possible. It's reviewed multiple times. And I, I'm very happy to say that it's very rare that we try to exclude questions at the final march because that complicates matters for the final adjudication for the past month as well. So I'm, I'm happy to say that that's a rare occurrence. Um, a, a little bit of a last uh, uh, observation is that I'm quite happy that initially we started this journey pre-COVID on the necessity of taking the exam in Pearson uh, centers. And now ECCC uh, has evolved to have this done in remote proctoring in wherever you are, in whichever country. And this has worked very well for the Asia Pacific uh, group of countries where it's very tough to travel and it's very expensive to fly out. So I, I think this has really been a marked improvement and uh, the COVID did precipitate this request uh, earlier uh, for us for the transition. So I'm, I'm happy for COVID for that one reason. Chris, back to you. So I think you're right. Um, we'd always been clear that we wanted to provide the exam to everybody who could benefit from it. And there are two important things. One is geography, and we didn't want to exclude people based on where they live, where they work. And the other one is cost. Uh, and the exam is provided at cost by the ESC, and the, the, the prices are what we are charged to deliver it. In terms of geography, we used Pearson View Centres, which are widespread around the world initially, because they were the best way that we had to deliver a, a high stakes exam with high security. We were forced to uh, reassess that, as Jack said, uh, for during COVID. And we knew we would have to because the exam is now approaching 800 to 1,000 uh, participants each year. And there simply aren't enough Pearson View Centre places uh, in the centre of Europe, for example, uh, for that number of candidates. So we knew we needed to change the model. Um, COVID precipitated that. And I'm delighted to say that uh, the way that it works is you, you, you sit the exam on your own PC, um, you are observed, monitored remotely by a proctor you service with, with a real person who you can talk to. And if you have uh, problems, they will sort them out for you on your computer. Uh, and that's worked extraordinarily well. And the number of problems, the number of technical issues that we've had is not zero, but it's significantly lower than ever was in Pearson View Centres. It's of the order of uh, 2% of people have a difficulty. Uh, but I would uh, encourage people to follow the, the suggestions, the requirements, um, to test your computer, download the software, book your slot in advance, so that we can make sure that it's going to be a smooth process on the day. Thanks, Chris. So I'd just like to wrap up by saying that this is a really good opportunity for the Asia-Pacific candidates to benchmark their standards. And we do need to improve uh, in general cardiology knowledge. I also like to acknowledge uh, Chris for all his contribution, the EEGC members from both Asia-Pacific as well as Europe and across the globe that's contributed. Particularly my last thanks to Dr. Wael Almamid from the United Arab Emirates who kindly seeded and started this journey with a seed funding grant to make this happen for the APSC and EGC. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank you for listening to Chris and myself to the end of this uh, podcast. I hope you just have a quick look at the publication. It's a good reference material for the intent of this EECC and APSC joint exit examination. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye.